So 1 Samuel is a book about God and the leadership of his people. The two books before 1 Samuel, Ruth and Judges, help us see that uh, in the way that they end. So open up your Bibles, uh, 1 Samuel, but then I want you to just flick back to the end of Judges, to Judges 21-25. It's important to get the historical context of what's going on and very quickly we can see it. So Judges 21-25, the last verse, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I don't know how well you know the period of the Judges, but it is some of the most horrifying um, pages of the Bible, the last chapters of Judges. Gross idolatry, sexual perversion and violence, women treated as the playthings of men, uh, civil war. Terrible. The big, le- big leadership lesson in Judges is uh, that people need a leader not only to be saved from their enemies, but that people need a leader who will save them from themselves. So leadership, or the lack of it, is the big issue Israel faced in the time of the judges. Just flick forward to the last verse of Ruth. So go forward a couple of pages. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, Ruth, also in the time of the judges. And the last verses of Ruth are a genealogy that take us from Perez, who you don't know anything about, I take it, He was from the tribe of Judah and in Genesis 49 it says that a king will come from the tribe of Judah. And so the book of Ruth in the time of Judges finishes with this genealogy and we won't read it, we've had enough weird names tonight. Uh, Well done Krista, read those names very well. Uh, But look at the last verse. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. Now I think you'll know who David was. David was... uh, God's chosen king in Israel, and 1 Samuel is the story how we get from the chaos and anarchy of the time of the judges to David being chosen as the king of Israel. So Samuel begins in the very dark days of Israel. And I wonder, did you get a sense of that as we were reading the uh, the Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel? It's kind of a quaint story and it's all a bit weird. But in chapter 1 verse 3 we're told that there's a temple, a tabernacle at Shiloh and there's priests there, Eli and his two sons. But then in chapter 2 we're told that Eli and his sons left a fair bit to be desired. Now priests were important leaders in Israel. They were to teach the people God's word and they were to mediate between God and the people through sacrifices and prayers. But chapter 2, verse 12, tells us that Eli's sons are, quote, wicked men who had no regard for the Lord. Not very good priests. Wicked men, all right. Eli's sons were actually, were really, sexual predators and bullies. Chapter um, uh, 2, verse 16, tells us that they sent their servants in to forcefully take the best cuts of meat from the offerings. Barbecue is always better than boiling meat. That's what they did. And uh, it said that the Lord was angry with them because they were treating his offering with contempt. 
But if you read on, 2 verse 22 tells us that they slept with the woman, women who served at the temple. Not very good, is it? So bad was the behaviour at the temple that when Hannah is praying fervently and silently, moving her lips, old Eli thinks she's drunk. It paints a picture, doesn't it? In the time of the judges, the temple was just like the rest of Israel, a place where there was no regard for God and where women weren't safe. Dark days indeed. So you see, to all appearances, Israel was all but finished. No king, corrupt priests, and God apparently away on long service leave. But things were not quite as they appeared. Now God was Israel's sovereign ruler. In 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, God actually says, I am their king, but they have rejected me. That was Israel's problem, you see. They'd rejected God as their king. So 1 Samuel, with all this leadership vacuum, begins in a very surprising place. It takes us to a nowhere and introduces us to some nobodies. To Elkanah, the Zuphite, and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. But it doesn't matter that they're nobodies, that they're unimportant. What does matter is that Elkanah is a godly man and Hannah, his barren wife, is also a godly woman. Now, Hannah is the main character in these first two chapters. See, she's the one person in Israel, it seems, maybe there are others, who believes that God is king despite appearances. And that's her focus, that's her view of the world. Well, Hannah is barren, and at first that seems like another bad story. Um, <clears throat> children were one of God's covenant blessings, and when you can't have kids, you feel cursed by God. But, not sure how you well know, you know your Bibles, but with our Bible noses sniffing the wind, we smell some hope here, because verse six, 5 and 6 tells us that God had, in that biblical way, quaint way, had closed her womb. God had stopped the having children and you think, okay, back into the Bible, so far in the Bible, God has brought about his greatest moments and blessings through women who can't have kids. Sarah, she's Abraham's wife. Uh, Rebecca, she's Isaac's wife. Rachel, uh, Rachel yes, yeah, she's uh, Jacob's wife. Samson's mother couldn't have children. They're all childless women through whom God graciously and miraculously brought to life his plans and the leaders of his people. Hannah is a godly woman who longs for the blessing of children. Natural. She's got to put up with that nasty piece of work, Panina. But have a look at her prayer in 1 verse 11. It shows us that her having a baby is not just about her. She's got bigger things on her mind. 1 verse 11. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Notice a few things. First, notice she knows who God is. Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. 
She knew that there might not be a king in Israel, but there's a king in heaven. She also knew who she was. She was God's servant. As a woman, she wanted the covenant blessing of children, but as God's servant, she wants her child also to be a servant of God, to be dedicated to the service of God. So when she prays, she prays not just for a child, she prays for a son, and not just for a son, but a son who it says no razor would ever be used on his head, dedicated to God for his wife. Now you think, what's that about? Back in Numbers, we learn about the Nazarites. And they were people who for a a period of time were dedicated to God and while they were dedicated to God, they weren't allowed to have a razor on their head or drink alcohol as a few other things. Hannah is saying, I'm going to dedicate my son, no razor on his head for his entire life. You see, Hannah is asking for a son and for big things for a son. She wants her son to be a lifelong Nazarite, a new and godly leader in Israel. Well, as we read the story, God was gracious to her and gave her a son. And true to her word, when she'd weaned him, probably about age three or four, the experts tell us, Hannah takes little Samuel to the temple to to hand him over to Eli and the service of the Lord. That's a big move, isn't it? Well, I want you to think about this from Eli's perspective. Eli hasn't seen Hannah for about four years. The text says she she didn't go up to the temple while she was raising this little boy. Then one day, completely out of the blue, Hannah turns up and says 1 verse 26. Look at 1 verse 26. She says, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord and he worshipped him there. That is, Samuel worshipped or served the Lord there. I can imagine it be a bit of a shock to Levi. What? Hannah's kind of turned up and said, get with the program, you know. But we're not told anything about what Eli says. No, we're taken to what Hannah said, Hannah's song. This is her take on, you know, at this momentous point in her life and the life of her little boy, Samuel. Now, Hannah's prayer is an amazing passage of the Bible. It helps us see the wonder of the inspiration of Scripture. It's at one and the same time a personal prayer expressing the joy and faith of a new mum, but on the other hand, it's an inspired prophecy that points us to God and his eternal king. It's quite extraordinary. Well, Hannah's song presents a view of life and of the world that actually turns everything on its head. Everything that we associate with human success and leadership through the song, military, might, wealth, political power. In her song, they're all turned upside down. See, Hannah's song poses a very big question for all of us. And the question is, how do you see the world? How do you see the world that you're in? It's a confusing and troubled world at the moment, isn't it? Droughts, 
dust storms, fires, coronavirus. How do you see the world? Do you see it as it appears to be, with all the commentary that comes with it? Or do you see the world as it really is, and that's how God sees it? So my question that I asked you before, does your knowledge and experience of God shape your view of the world or does your knowledge and experience of the world shape your view of God? We live in a very different world to ancient Israel uh, but I think in a very real sense it's pretty much the same. Last verse of Judges, in those days everyone did as he saw fit. So do Australians, don't we? Don't we do what we see fit? And if someone says, Oi, you say, get out of my face, leave me alone, I'm doing my thing, you go and do yours, just leave me alone. So you could sum up the Australian worldview, I think, in the word individualism. It's a view of life where everyone lives as they please with themselves as their own reference point. And we can see how it pans out. It doesn't work. Individualism controls our choice of political leaders, doesn't it? We vote for our leaders solely because of what they can do for me. Hang the national interest. It's all about me. Individualism has created its own self-referential morality. And you can hear it when people say silly things like, it doesn't matter what someone does in their own home, so long it doesn't affect me. It doesn't work. Just as in the days of the judges, in Australia, God is rejected and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Nothing's changed in 3,000 years. The question is, how does all this stack up against a biblical worldview? What happens to our proud individualism when we're confronted with the reality that there is a God and that he rules our world. Well, what we realise is that things are not as they appear to be. God can and does turn everything on its head. That is what Hannah knew and that's what her song is about. So now you can listen to the points I give you as we go. Please look at Hannah's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to go through it. So my first point is complete confidence in God. Hannah had complete confidence in God. Verse 1, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and in the Lord my horn, that means my strength, it's a metaphor, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now I want to remind you of the context of what she is saying. Remember that Hannah is singing this song after she's just delivered her only son to Eli at the temple. She hasn't had any more children yet. She's going home to that nasty piece of work, Penina, childless. But she knows that God is God, that there is no one like God, that he is her rock. So she won't be moved. So despite the heartache and the mockery of Penina, 
the heartache of leaving her little boy behind, she can actually stare life in the face and rejoice in the Lord. That's a strong understanding of God, isn't it? So one, confidence in God. Second, God is the God who knows. Verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. That's a great description of God. The God who knows, more literally the God of knowledge. What does it mean? Well, it means that God is God because he knows everything. There are no secrets from him. There is nothing that is unknown to him. So, see, there's no possibility of you fooling God. So, you see, human arrogance is completely pointless. Can't help but think that she's got Penina in mind. Penina was arrogant towards Hannah. But she shouldn't have been, should she? Because, see, God knew he'd closed Hannah's womb and he knew that he would give her a child. She was full of hot air. And God knew it and God would weigh her in the balance. Hannah didn't have to worry about Penina. See, God sees things as they are. He knows what is going on. He isn't fooled by appearances. He weighs up our lives by what we truly are, not by what we appear to be. Now, this is such an important truth for us, for you guys to get hold of, because our world has actually rejected truth for appearance. It's swap knowledge for gossip. This was illustrated to me in an extraordinary way a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago, for reasons I won't go into, nothing dodgy, um, I found myself waking up in my car in the Narrabri Hospital car park. Now what woke me up was this car that came, I could just hear it, came quickly in and parked and parked opposite me and so I sort of pull the lever on the seat and sit up and look over my dashboard. And what I see is this young woman, probably a nurse, putting some makeup on, doing her hair, all in a hurry. She's clearly flustered. Then she gets out of a car and starts rushing across the car park, sort of going past me. I'm thinking, gee, I hope she doesn't see me. This kind of feels a bit weird. But then she stopped right in the middle of the car park. She pulled out her phone. And she, this transformation came over her, beatific, joyous smile, took a selfie, <laughs> then she fiddled, dropped it in her purse, and then ran off to the hospital. <laughs> now, I'm a bit slow, and I don't have Facebook or Instagram, is it? I don't have any of that. But I realised what she'd done. You see, she'd she, she was running late, she was harried, she, you know, life sucks, you know. But, no, 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 I've got to put a nice picture on Facebook and probably um, with a caption, another lovely day at my wonderful job. <laughs> Not. I thought, there's a woman who lives by appearance. And I've got to say, in that moment, I felt terribly, terribly sorry for her. 
See, imagine how much better off she would be to understand life, to see life the way Hannah does. To personally know the God who knows, to know that she doesn't have to pretend. To be known and loved by the God who knows. You see, when you know that, when you know that, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. Do you see life as Hannah does? Through the lens of a good and powerful God who knows? Or do you think life revolves around you and that it's all up to you? I hope not. Well, number three. The God who transforms the God who transforms things. Hannah's worldview was shaped by her understanding that the God who knows could and would transform things for his own good and just purposes. And so as you read through her song, it's full of transformations. It's full of reversals, of changes. It's full of things being turned on their head. So just follow with me. I won't explain them. You'll see them. Follow with me. Verse 4. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who had stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pine away. You see the reversals? The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them, in, and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. See, God owns the world. Our society is a very fearful society, isn't it? I think. Afraid of death, don't know what to do with that. Afraid of poverty, of being needy. Afraid of being childless, afraid of being weak. Because we're afraid of those things, then we glory in the opposite. Uh, Political power, beauty, fitness, strength, intelligence. But human power and human weakness look completely different if you see the world as Hannah did. See, God had brought about a great reversal in her life and she knew that her reversal from barrenness to fruitfulness was just one small illustration of the power of God to reverse any and everything in the world if he saw fit. Hannah knew God's character, she knew his power and his knowledge of people's hearts and so she trusted his just purposes So get this, she was willing to give him her son. Wow. That's a big view of God, isn't it? Do you see the world as Hannah sees it? Four, God will be victorious. Hannah's prayer is not naive though. She doesn't think that if I trust in God, It's a ticket to life of never-ending joy and prosperity. No, she says the Lord sends both poverty and wealth, sends both death and life. 
Now, Hannah's view of God reshaped her thinking so that she thought beyond the fluctuations of this life to etern- and gave her an eternal view of things. She knows that God, with his justice, is the one who has the final victory. And so, as one of his saints, she has hope. Pick it up with me in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, the Lord will be victorious in the end through his king, his chosen and anointed king, who will be both um, saviour and judge. In those days there was no king in Israel, but there was a king in heaven, the Lord Almighty. And Hannah knew that one day he would install his chosen king in Israel. And so as far as she was concerned, he was the only king she was interested in and she hoped in God's purposes that would get her there. Well, 3,000 years later we look back from our standpoint and see and know what Hannah could not have seen and not have known. That just like her, God would give up his own son so that he could come and be that anointed Messiah King, Jesus Christ. That's what Christ means. It means Messiah or anointed one. The king who would turn the world on its head. Jesus was the word and the wisdom of God, but everyone thought he was foolish. Jesus was the king who came to seek and serve and save who? His enemies. Jesus is the king who conquered sin and death by dying. As you think about your life and your world, do you see it through the same lens as Hannah? As I said, is your view of the world shaped by your understanding and experience of God? Or is it the other way around? Your view of God is all over the place because it's shaped by your understanding and experience of the world. Let me finish with two fairly quick points of application. Just imagine that when you go home tonight, you're inspired by Hannah to write your own song out of your own experience. Can I ask you, what would your song be about? Would it be about you or would it be about God? Hannah's song is written out of her experience, but what's remarkable as you read through that song is it's not about her. It's about God. It's about the giver, not the gift. It's about the one who controls her circumstances, not about her circumstances. It's worth thinking about. What would your song be about? We're the products of our culture and so I think often look at life from a non-biblical worldview. And so Hannah has a lot to teach us about a right view of God and his world. Two, second point. Simply this, who is it that you follow? It's a serious question. See, who has your attention? 
Who do you aspire to be like? Politician, a sports star? I don't know, some, someone wealthy? What, what is it that you follow? Success, wealth, power, comfort? Do you follow godly people or do you follow worldly people? See, who is it that you actually follow? God will save and God will judge everyone to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ, his chosen king. If he is not who you are actually following, then you need to rethink your direction in life. Do you want God to thunder from heaven against you as your judge or do you want him to come from heaven for you as your deliverer? The question that Hannah's song raises for all of us is this. Is, God, is God's chosen king, Jesus Christ, my king? Or do I live as if there is no king and I can do as I please? How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ancient part of your word. And we thank you that just as you inspired Hannah to write this song, you're also at work in us by your spirit to apply to our hearts and lives that which we need to learn and apply. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will be at work in all of us tonight and write this word on our heart. Please lead us to faith and repentance. Uh, and to make the Lord Jesus the leader of our life. We pray it for his glory and your glory and in his name. Amen.